I don't know what you guys have been through, are going through, or will go through, but for most people, they'll experience some form of an incredible isolation or loneliness or anger that words can not describe. It has happened, it's happening, it's always been, it always will be that as long as we are not with the Lord, there's going to be things that we encounter that we do not know how to handle. Things that are bigger than us, things that we don't necessarily know how to deal with, things that we don't know how to respond to, and that we don't have answers for. It's a very, very real reality, and it is difficult when in your own life you come to a position in which death looks better than life. How does that happen? Why do we get that way? And what causes us to feel so desperate to be done? There's no one uniformal answer to that question, although there is one solution to the problem. I'll tell you right now that it is Jesus Christ and Him alone who brings true hope and true joy to the broken to the downtrodden, to the lost. There's a couple of questions I want to ask you guys and we'll talk about tonight, but just to test your brains. And I'm pretty confident you guys know the truth. But some true or false kind of questions. I'm pretty confident you guys being uh, around the peers that you're around, involved in the life that you're involved in, around the friends that you have, you probably have a pretty good gauge. But unfortunately, most of the world does not. Uh, understand the perspective of suicide, depression, things like cutting that we'll talk about tonight, and self-harm. All of these things are very real. They are increasing in uh, how common they are. They're increasing in popularity, and yet people seem to not understand the drive behind them. I want to ask you guys some true-false questions and see uh, how much of this you can wrap your mind around. The first one, okay, the question is, uh, people who cut and self-injure are doing it to get attention. Is this true or false? How many of you guys are like, it's true. They're doing this. Self-harm is to get attention. Uh, they're crying out for help. Okay? How many of you guys are like, it's false, or at least I think it's false? How many of you guys are like, I have no clue. This is, okay, right. Um, you ready for a bit of a shocker for most of you guys? It is false. What? I've always been told people that are cutting themselves, they're acting out, and they're wanting attention. If you'll notice, they don't do it in public. And then they cover it up to try and hide it. Someone who is isolating themselves, hurting themselves, and then covering it up so no one knows that they're doing it is not crying out for attention. They're hurting in a way that they feel no one can understand. It's not just a cry for, oh, that dummy, they just want attention, or oh, she's just, she just wants uh, everyone to notice her, and they, they're just uh, trying to get people to look at them or to give them attention or whatever it is. That's not the case. So don't think that these are just people who want attention for the moment. They like to be in the limelight for the day. That is not it. That is never it. They may be drama if they want attention. They might run around and and do whatever they think is popular for the moment. But when it comes to cutting and depression and thoughts of suicide, it is not for attention. It is utter hopelessness that drives them to that kind of isolation. 
People who self-injure, the next kind of question, true, false. People who self-injure, they're dangerous or kind of crazy. They're out there. They're, they're different. They're weird. They're strange. Uh, and, and there's something that's probably a little bit freaky, so you need to keep your distance because they might hurt you too or they might influence you. How do you guys say that's true? They are a little bit weird. They dress in all black and they paint their fingernails and they're weird, like, right? Okay, how do you guys say, like, yeah, they're a little bit dangerous, right? How do you guys say, like, no way, man. Good job. It is false. A lot of people think that, look, uh, if you're cutting and if you're self-harming, by the way, can I let you guys know tonight, you're like, well, I don't cut, so I don't self-harm. That is not true at all. Self-harm, the most popular thing right now is cutting, but it comes down to piercing and poking and burning. It comes down to beating yourself up. It comes down to any form of inflicting pain upon yourself is what this world is turning to in desperation because they don't know what else to do. Predominantly youth and young adults. It's incredible how popular it has become. But they're not weird. They're totally normal people. They live a fairly normal life. They've just had something tragic happen and they are crying out from the inside in a way that they feel no one can really understand. Third thing, uh, people who self-injure, they want to die. They are suicidal. They want to die. And eventually they'll probably end up that way. How many of you guys are like, yeah, definitely. People who are cutting and inflicting pain, they're suicidal. How many of you guys say, yeah, definitely. Okay. How many of you guys are like, I don't know. How many of you guys are like, no, it's not true? A lot of you guys know the answers to these. It's false. It's not true. They don't want to die. They typically, for the majority of them, it's not that they're dangerous. It's not that they're weird. It's not that they're trying to get attention. It's not that they're suicidal and crazy and you got to give them a ton of medication and check them into a mental ward. They're hurting in a way that maybe some of us don't yet understand. It is an incredible amount of pain or anger or frustration or confusion. It's not just, oh, they're freaks and they want to kill themselves. The last one, true or false, if the wounds are not that bad, the cuts aren't that deep or the burn marks aren't that big or they don't bruise themselves when they hit themselves, if the wounds are not that bad, then it isn't a big deal. It's just a small deal. Have you guys say that's true, actually? Uh, if they have real big cuts or a lot of scars is a big problem, and if they're just little cuts or little scars, it's just a little problem. Have you guys say it's true? Okay. Have you guys say it's false? Okay. It's false. We're staying true to the theme tonight, if you can tell. There's a lot of false perceptions, though. A lot of times people have a friend that they just did a little bit, or they just saw it one time, or they just heard of the person talk about it or share about it just for a moment, and then they moved on. And so it must not be that big of a deal. Anytime someone gets to the point of longing to inflict pain upon themselves, it's a big deal. There is something huge going on in their lives. When we talk about cutting and uh, self-harm, look at, does it help people feel better? The answer is yes. It, would you keep doing it if it didn't make you feel better? Of course not. Does it help them feel better? The answer is yes, it absolutely does. It relieves the pain or at least refocuses it from your heart and the desperation of your soul to the infliction of your outer body. It does help, but the problem is it only helps for a little while and leads to greater problems. It is not a solution. It helps for a moment, but only creates more hurdles to get over. Oftentimes, it becomes addictive, something that even when they want to stop, they cannot, and is very prone to lead towards suicidal tendencies. 
So does it help? Yeah, it does, but it only creates more problems. It is never, never the solution. It typically comes from five or six main ways, expressing feelings you cannot put into words. It's expressing feelings you cannot put into words, where there is no human language known to man that it could express the feelings that you are going through or the desperation that you are experiencing. And so they turn to what they think will relieve them of this pressure that builds up inside. It's releasing the pain and tension that you feel, oftentimes coupled together. Uh, The third thing that oftentimes or it can be a cause of it is helping you feel in control. There's people who are completely controlled by everything around them. Maybe it's a situation in the family that they have no say in. It's a divorce or something catastrophic that has happened or something going on in their lives Uh, or it's something outside of their control and they're desperate to reach out, but they don't know how. It distracts you from sometimes your overwhelming emotions or the difficult life circumstances. And this is one that I think is more often the reality than people recognize. It's a way of punishing yourself or trying to relieve yourself of guilt for who you think you are. Oftentimes it's because, look at I messed up, I'm screwed up, I stink, I messed, I, I'm the problem. And so it's a way of inflicting pain and you're kind of disciplining yourself. It makes you feel alive sometimes when you're numb, only to cause more shame, more guilt, more disgrace. And we think, look, it's going to help. No, it's not. Because afterwards, the, all the problems come back and now you're ashamed of what you did. And so you isolate yourself from your friends and then from your family. And then the only person you know is yourself and you feel absolutely alone. It will never help. What's nuts that since 2010, the number of people cutting has more than doubled in the last four years. More than doubled. In just four years, it has more than doubled, 100% more now than just four years ago. And it's estimated that the the popularity of this whole issue is going to increase over time. Currently, one in every 12 youth are cutting or have cut themselves. One in every 12. We could count right now. That'd be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, 12, 12, 12. In this room, there'd be, what, 12, 10, 15 people? That's a lot of people. This isn't 1 in 100 or 1 in 1,000 or 1 in a million. It's 1 in 12 people in junior high or high school that have no hope, no control, no way to express themselves, and so they turn towards what they think is the answer. This blew my mind. You guys know, how how old are you in third grade typically? You're you're seven, you're eight years old. Okay, you go in typically at seven, you come out at eight eight years old. Little kid, okay? 7.6%, almost 8% of third graders are inflicting some kind of self-harm this year. What is going on? At seven years old, At seven years old, you're turning to things. Now, maybe they don't have the knives or or the blades yet, but they're inflicting some kind of pain, whether they're hitting themselves or they're throwing themselves into different objects or they're burning themselves with erasers or whatever it is. But this is not a problem that's going to just go away overnight. It's one that we've got to learn to deal with and how to come alongside of those who are dealing with it. I'll tell you right now, all of this idea of cutting and suicide, it is a lie from Satan and it is from the pit of hell. 
It is not from God. It is deception at its finest. Pain will never make pain go away. It's never going to work. Pain will never make pain go away. The Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are the dwelling place of God Almighty, and that Satan comes in to still, to kill, and to destroy what God calls precious. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There is no way any of this stuff is of the Lord. We go from cutting and eventually at least a suicide or it can be its own kind of a thing, but suicide, you know this? That amongst youth, it is the third leading cause of death between, from people of the ages of 13 to 24 years old. It's the third leading cause of death from people in junior high, high school, and early adult college age. Yes, ma'am. I didn't look it up. I'm sure it's something like auto accidents and drownings or something. I don't know. I don't know. But the reality is, is that not very far down the list, Suicide is the third leading cause of death from people in junior high, high school, and early college. And it doesn't go away as a young adult. It's the second leading cause of people 25 to 35 years old. It only increases over time. Almost 16% of students have reported that they have had serious considerations about attempting suicide. And almost 13% of people in junior high and high school have actually planned out how they would do it if they were going to. That is a big number. And it is a big problem. They say, on average, crazy, 105 suicides a day in the United States of America. 105 people kill themselves, take their own lives in the United States of America every single day. And for every accomplished attempt, there's 100 to 200 failed attempts that follow it every single day. They estimate uh, the, what is it, the... American Foundation for Suicide Prevention estimates it to be close to a million attempts of suicide a year within the United States of America alone. It's a huge problem. One of the things that God loves most is life itself. There's nothing more that God desires than to give you life and that more abundantly. More Americans suffer from depression, uh, says many studies. More Americans suffer from depression than heart disease, cancer, or HIV, which is AIDS. That depression is now uh, considered to be the biggest problem in the United States of America. Do you know that? Do you know that the number one most sold prescription for people who are suffering from depression? Over any other medication in the world, depression is what we are medicating. It's insane. But just this morning, driving in, heard a very interesting interview with a guy, a gentleman, Dr. Charles D. Hodges, who's done a ton of research recently and discovered some alarming realities. Since 1988, the amount of people within the United States who have been diagnosed with clinical depression has skyrocketed, taken off more than quadrupled since 1988. It is on the rise uh, insanely increasing at a rapid rate. They say that currently 10 to 20% of Americans fall into the classification of depression. That's one in every five people. It's insane. But current studies are finding out that though it's the number one selling drug in America, it's the number one prescription, it's the number one problem, he's discovered that actually amongst these millions and millions and millions and millions of people, about 90% of them who've been diagnosed and told, you have depression, you have a problem, 
take this medication, 90% of them are not actually struggling with depression. And as low as only 2% of America is actually going through what is known to be depression. Well, then what's the problem? And how is it that 90 to 98% of people that are going after this or feeling hopeless or lost or alone are receiving this kind of a help? What are they going through? If 90% of them feel desperate, hopeless, thoughts of suicide, but they're not linked in with depression, what is it? I think we've missed the mark. Depression is being completely devastated and void of all hope for no known reason. They've discovered that most people struggling with what we call depression, most of them, they are going through something real. Not saying they're not. They're going through something hard. They're going through something difficult. They feel alone. They feel isolated. The feelings are the same, but you can go back and you can follow it back to something that traumatic happened in their life or they're grieving or they're mourning something huge that took place a day, a week, a month, or a year or whatever, a lifetime ago. That there's a cause and there's a reason that they lost all hope. I don't think that the problem with America and the youth of today is depression, although we like to say, I'm struggling with depression. I think the true Problem is hopelessness, and there's a difference. If I say, you have depression, take this medication, what you think is, I have a problem. I am a problem. My brain doesn't work right. I need medicine to fix me because I'm the problem. You're not the problem. Just taking some pill rarely will ever fix anything when it's only 2% out of the 100 that are getting it. What is it? It's not you. The world needs Jesus. I remember very much in a huge, huge way. Remember, it started in junior high for me. I totally remember. You begin to isolate yourself, and it starts with frustration, or it starts with whatever, and it's all a little bit different, but very common. I remember by the middle of high school, after a few years of going through things I couldn't expressed, didn't understand. I remember night after night after night sitting on the end of my bed thinking about all the different ways I could end my life. Thinking about all the different things I could do. Thinking about all the different reasons to live and kept coming up with nothing. I remember begging God every morning, Lord, I'm not going to kill myself, but I hope I get hit by a bus or I hope I get in a car accident or I hope a plane falls out of the sky and just takes me out. I'm so tired of this. I'm so done with life. And there was no reason. And I would cry out to God. I meant it. I meant it big time. Thank God he doesn't listen to those kinds of prayers, right? It's real. I know it's like to sit there completely alone. And isn't it interesting? The Bible oftentimes talks about this contrast of light and darkness. And the more alone we get or the desperate we feel, the darker things literally become. We begin to close the windows and close the door and turn down the light. We literally begin to hide ourselves in the shadows. Because you have no idea where else to go. Is it okay to feel hopeless? Is it okay to feel hopeless? It's a big question. 
is it all right to go through these things? Are you alone? In reality, most people will deal with this stuff. What does God think? Oh man, I messed up. I hate my life. I ask God to take my life. I don't want to live my life anymore. God must be sick of me. God must hate me. This is wrong. It is not God's desire. It is not God's plan. It is not God's will. But he is not sick of you. He's not given up on you. And he does not hate you for it. Is it okay to feel hopeless? Do you guys think that God knows what it's like to feel hopeless? He does. Jesus understands desperation. Jesus understands loneliness. Jesus hung on the cross for us and he stood in a place that no one will ever understand but him. Holy, perfect, and righteous and gave up his entire life for people who would turn around and spit in his face, mock him, and turn everything he owned into a game of gambling. He understands what it's like to be alone. I'm not telling you you should. I'm not telling you it's good or that God's glad about it. But he understands and he will take you through it. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Is it okay to feel hopeless? Absolutely. We go through these things, but let God take you through them. Don't isolate yourself more and more. Begin to press in towards God and see what he does. Ecclesiastes, a book that very few people ever read. Chapter 3, it says that there is a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time for all of it. Is it okay to be broken? Is it okay to be downtrodden? Is it okay to weep? Is it okay to mourn? Yes, there's actually a time for it. But recognize there's also a time for the other stuff. Things will change. I promise you. It doesn't feel like it though, huh? It never feels like it. Or if you've talked to a friend who's going through it, it doesn't feel like it. They feel like there is no hope, no end, that they're locked in a room. Not only are the doors locked, there are no doors, there are no windows. This is just it. It's not it. And if it were, God would just blow up the building and build you a new one. Things change. I promise you, God is a master designer and things will change. Psalms chapter 42, verse 11, is it okay to feel hopeless? God understands. Even shepherd boy who became king, David, why are you downcast, oh my soul? You guys ever look at yourself like, what is wrong with me? What is going on? Why do I have no hope? Why, there, what is going on here? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. It does not say hope in friends, hope in change, hope in family, hope in moving, hope in better grades, hope in uh, changing the situation. You hope in God because God can change all things. Sometimes he says, look at old things have passed away and I will make them brand new. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. It means that he will pick up our faces when no one else is there. Or when you feel completely alone, there's one person you cannot kick out of your life. You know that? We can remove ourselves and isolate ourselves as much as we want. And we think we're finally alone. We've shut everybody out and turn around. It's like, whoa, who are you? The Lord will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will not orphan you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is an incredible portion of the scriptures, but it says, You are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Some of you guys tonight may be living in that darkness. And a lot of times we think darkness only refers to evil. It does refer to evil. It does refer to sin. It does refer to being lost. But sometimes we're lost in our absolute, utter hopelessness. What do you do when everything's closing in around you? Turn to the Lord. He pulls you. I don't know how he does it, but by his mighty right hand, he will grab you and pull you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. We talk about the light. When we talk about the light, what are we talking about? There's two interesting places in the Gospels that we're told uh, is the light. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so we look to Jesus and we turn to Jesus and he is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is all about life and life more abundantly. He came to save life, to forgive us of our sins so we would not inherit everlasting death. But life, it's what he's all about. He is truth and he is light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said that I am the light of the world. But there's another light that he left behind. Matthew chapter 5 tells us clearly when Jesus says, look at I am the light of the world. But he also says, you are the light of the world. Tonight, if you are a believer, you're like, I'm, I'm good. I'm doing fine. You are a light. You are called to bring hope. I don't know if you guys have ever had a nightmare I don't know if you guys have ever woken up in the middle of the dark and like all I want, even my phone, right? You're like, just give me something. Give me something. Why? Even the tiniest little glow gives a little bit of hope. Maybe you're not a super strong believer, but God has called you to bring hope to a lost and dying generation. He's called you to come alongside of others. You guys have heard the story, I would imagine, of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan, all these people come by a man who'd been beaten up, who'd been robbed, and they think he's dead, so they leave him there, they take his stuff, and they leave, move on, and all kinds of different people come by, religious people, professional people, people of authority, and they don't have time, or they don't have uh, the ability, or whatever, and so they, oh my goodness, and they go on, and they pretend like they didn't see it, uh, or they ignore it, or feel like they're powerless to do anything about it, and this absolute, just strange individual who's not supposed to care at all about this man comes along, this Samaritan, we don't know his name, but he sees someone fallen down by the side of the road, completely broken and good as dead. What does he do? Is he a doctor? I don't think so. Because he takes him to a doctor. Is he trained in first aid? Is he a firefighter? Most likely not. Don't think they had those back then. What was he? He's someone who cared. He's someone who had compassion. Most of you had the answers right, right? Are, are they weirdos and freaks and are they dangerous if they're hurting or cutting or suicidal? No, they're not. They're normal people. Do they just want attention? Too many of us said yes on that one. And so we people, they may not be laying down physically, but their spirits are dying on the inside. God has called you to be a light, to bring hope, to bring truth, to come alongside those who are, for whatever reason, more and more and more and more turning to these things of darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforteth by the coming of Titus. Like, what is this? Who brings comfort? Who ultimately brings comfort? Do you guys know? 
Jesus, God, he is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, and he is what brings comfort. But how does God do that? Is it supernatural, and sometimes God just gives you peace that uh, surpasses all understanding and a comfort that just matches nothing else on the face of the planet? Is that true? Does God do that? Does he supernaturally come alongside people and comfort them? Yes or no? Big time. Absolutely. But what's the other way that God does it? What is it? Through you. You are it. You're it. Remember, not that long ago, we were in a hospital, children's hospital, and you walk by and you recognize a lot of the kids have very similar stuffed animals. What is that? You think it's this funny little strange thing. Oh, okay, they all have the same tie-dyed teddy bear, right? It's kind of weird. But you realize there's all kinds of stuff in that room, but what's on their bed? That little tie-dyed teddy bear. What's the deal? This little strange object is somehow bringing a whole bunch of comfort. It wasn't a big deal. Someone walked by with a cart and said, hey, pick a bear. And, you know, they're almost all the same. So the kid grabs one and for months is sitting in a hospital with this little tie-dye teddy bear uh, hanging out. And over time, it becomes his best friend. I'm not saying you're supposed to be some tie-dye teddy bear. But God will use you. I'm not that big of a deal. And I don't know what to say. What if you don't need to say anything? What if people need an ear to hear them? Come alongside them and encourage them. Even throughout the Bible, we find different places where, just like this guy, Titus, he comes and he brings comfort. It is God comforting people through people sometimes. Not just, hey, I'll pray for you, and you walk out, but you sit down and you weep with them or you cry with them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. We are commanded, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we be obedient to the Lord? How do we follow Jesus as a believer when it comes to people who are hurting or broken or they're inflicting pain or they're suicidal or they're hopeless? You bear the burden with them. You don't ignore them. You don't step to the other side of the road. You'd be like the good Samaritan. You may have no business. Maybe, oh, that guy is weird. He's actually weird. I get it. And he's actually hurting. Do you see that part too? Or do we just see the outward expression? Get in there. Did the Good Samaritan know what he was doing? Not really. He bandages him up and throws him on his donkey and takes him into town and drops him off at a doctor's. If all you can do is come alongside someone, talk to them, and lead them to a parent, or lead them to a teacher, or lead them to a pastor, or lead them, lead them somewhere, but come alongside. Don't just leave them for dead. Lead them to the Lord. Romans chapter 12. I want to read this to you guys. Romans chapter 12, if we could do this, we'd be doing really well. Starting at verse 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. You know what it means to be a, a hypocrite? What does it mean to be a hypocrite? Okay, tell people, don't you dare go on the internet. Right? That's a, that's a great example. What else what does it mean to be a hypocrite? Yep. Yeah, that's an extreme case. You come and you worship and you serve and you have your Bible and you go home and you cuss at your kids and beat your wife. That's definitely a hypocrite. Yep. Something you say you are, but you're not. That's a very good, simple way of putting it. What you got? What? Yep, telling someone not to do something you do. 
saying something and doing the complete opposite? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like it basically means the old word comes out of being two-faced. Literally, in the old days, we had to go to plays because there was no TV or internet. Ah, right. What did you do? You'd go, and oftentimes there weren't enough people, or only guys could be actors, and so they'd have two masks in one. You've seen the faces that are half like black and half white. It's a happy and a sad face, and they literally wear it one side and they jump to the other side, and they would change instantaneously from one person to the next. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. And our love as believers in Jesus is not to be instantaneously two-faced. We cannot do it. The world needs to see the love of Jesus, and it's going to come through the love of his people. Let me read it to you. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, hate what is evil, and cling or hang on to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Isn't brotherly love an interesting thing? You can hate your brother or your sister so much, and they can get under your skin, and man, if I could feed you to the dog, I would, and rah, 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 rah. But then they fall down, and they break their arm, or their face hits the ground, or they skin up their knees, and it's like, oh my gosh, mom, right? You're screaming for help, and all of a sudden, you care about them more than anything else going on. As soon as they're better, it's like, dummy, why'd you fall down? (laughs) And they're like, because you tied my shoes together. Oh yeah, sorry. Brotherly love is is interesting because when the time is real, so is the compassion, so is the love. Guys, we are called to be disciples of Jesus, to follow him and to be like him. He didn't hate the world. He so loved the world that he came and died for our sins. Our love cannot be hypocritical. We're to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. Be very fervent, be fired up in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. It goes on, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We find people that are all happy and excited or something cool is going on. And instead of being like, dude, I'm so glad for you. That's awesome. You got a new iPhone or you get to go on vacation or you get to do this or no way. Instead, it's like, that's not fair. Right? No, rejoice with them. Well, I don't have that. So what? They do. That's awesome. How often are we like that? Honestly, at best, we just kind of be like, well, good for him. What is What is that? Jealousy, covetousness, greed, it's sure ain't the spirit. That's, that's absolutely certain. What is it? It's not love. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If they're excited, man, good job, right on, awesome. And weep with those who weep. What's your problem, weirdo? Guy wears all black all the time. They, they're standing in the corner and they're just different. Maybe they're just broken. Maybe they're just hurting. Maybe they're just desperate. And the person that God sent into that campus or down that street or in that skate park or on that soccer team or you get what I'm saying is you. If you're stuck in darkness, all you need is a little bit of light. 
John chapter 10, verse 10. Isn't it funny we blame God for so much that he doesn't do? It is the thief referring to Satan. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly, overflowingly. I want to lead them to pastures that will always be green. I want to take them to places of incredible blessing. I want to give them strength when they are weak. I want to give them hope when they are hopeless. I want to be the light in the darkness. I want to be everything they need, for I am everything they need. Satan is the one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And anytime we give in to that, I mean, if you guys are struggling with brokenness or depression or hopelessness or you're cutting or you just, you think, man, I want to end my life all the time. I don't think I'd ever do it, but I just feel like, gosh, I just want this to end. I've prayed those things. I've prayed, God, take me out. Take me home. What do you do? When we side with those thoughts, we are siding with Satan. It's the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't give in to what the enemy is doing. It is God who has come to give life in that more abundantly. Don't listen to Satan more than you do the Savior. Something I want to look at and compare with you guys. Look, the first portion, if you're a believer and you have friends that are hurting, God has called you to go to them, to bring hope into the life of the hopeless. But Satan's lies versus God's promises. They're as different as black and white. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. I don't know if you're there now. But when you're broken, you hear some strange things in your head. And not literally, whoa, I'm hearing voices. But your thoughts are of darkness and not of light. You'll begin to think, there's no hope. There is no hope. I am completely stuck in this situation. And yet, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, given us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We think there is no hope. God says, I've given you a living hope. It's not just a stale object. It's not something dead and dying. In fact, it is alive and it is growing that when you look to me, it increases. It does not decrease. We begin to think, man, everything stinks in my life. Nothing is going on good. Everyone hates me. This is absolutely absurd. Everything's falling apart. It may be true. It may be true. But Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, and we know, we know. What do you know? I know this much. That all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You guys ever feel like giving up? <clears throat> A few half hands. Yeah, I felt like that. <coughs> Hold on. Yeah, I feel like giving up all the time. Hold on. Hold on to what? If all you have left to hold on to Jesus, it's more than enough. <clears throat> if all you have is your faith, it's more than enough. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 29, it says, He gives power to the weak. You feel weak? You ever feel completely empty and powerless? Do you feel weak? Yeah, I do. 
He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He will increase their strength. Even the youth. You think God knows you get hopeless and desperate and alone and isolated and depressed sometimes? Absolutely. He says, even the youth shall faint and they will be weary. And the young men, the strong, they will fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Sometimes we're convinced there's nothing worth living for. There's nothing worth living for. At least that's what the enemy tells us. That's what Satan would like to whisper into your heart. It's it. It's over. Right? There's no hope. God says it's a living hope. Oh, everything stinks. God says, yeah, it does stink. And I use it all for good to those who love me. It says, look, Satan says, give up. Just give up. Just, it's over. It's fine. Look, it doesn't, death would end it. It'd be over and you wouldn't have to feel this anymore. God says, hold on. You're weak and I know you're weak. And you're hurting. I know you're hurting. I will give you strength. And then Satan says, look, there's nothing worth living for. Everything you have is falling apart. This is, this is it. Jeremiah 29, 11, maybe there's nothing worth living for now, but what about tomorrow? Well, I don't know about tomorrow. God does. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God has a plan for tomorrow. He has a plan for next week. He has a plan for next year and so on and on and on. Trust me, if today looks dark, tomorrow there will be more light. God has a future and he has a plan. You feel alone. Look, no one loves me. No one loves me. What if worst case scenario, it's true? It's most likely it's not. What if everyone, though, has actually given up on you? What if everyone is actually abusing you? What if everyone actually is just kicking you to the curb? There is one who will never reject you. Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an ever lasting love. Imagine trying to stop Niagara Falls. Right? See, I don't care what you do, you are not stopping Niagara Falls. You can't do it. Imagine getting out there like, that's it. I am stopping this gigantic waterfall right now. How are you going to do it? I'm going to crash a plane into it. It'll just sink to the bottom. I'm going to build a dam. Like, yeah, good luck. It'll just push it off the edge. What are you going to do? How are you going to stop it? I, want to, I don't care how bad you want to stop it. You're not stopping it. And you cannot stop God from loving you. It's impossible. There's nothing you've ever done, are doing, or will do to stop the love of God. What if you feel, look, at no one understands? First of all, it's a lie. Remember, we're comparing Satan's lies to God's truths. It's a lie. There are hundreds and thousands of people who feel like no one will understand, and they all feel that way. People understand. None more than the Lord, but people understand what it's like to be alone. I remember the darkness. I remember the pain. I remember the hopelessness. The Psalms chapter 39, verse 2, it is God who knows everything. It says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar off. No one knows how I feel. God says, I know your thoughts before you think them. And trust me, I know what's in your heart. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. What does that mean? Jesus was very alone. 
When he stood in trial in front of Pontius Pilate and the crowd, he was alone. When he was dragged up the side of a mountain with a cross, he was alone. When he was being beaten and whipped and mocked and crown of thorns beat into his head, he was alone. And when he died on the cross, he was the only one on that cross. He knows what it's like to be alone. And so it says, look at, look at this, it's amazing. Tempted in all points, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where are you at tonight? Time of need? Brokenness? Hopelessness? Who do you turn to? I cannot, I wish I could, I cannot, I've been praying all day long. Lord, there's people tonight that are gonna need you and there's nothing I can do to help. I do not have the answers, I cannot fix your lives. No one around you is gonna solve all of your issues. But God is incredible. He gives new life and he has a plan and a future and a hope. And what if worst case scenario, it comes down to, look at I'm the problem. I hate myself. My parents are fine. My friends are fine. Our house is cool. I am the problem. I hate myself. I stink. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Then get a new life. Get a new life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. In Romans chapter 8, it tells us that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Isn't it crazy? All these thoughts that you go through are people that are cutting, or they're hurting themselves, or they're beating themselves, or they're inflicting pain. Somehow, the amount of condemnation, and you start feeling like, man, I stink, and I'm horrible, and I should give up, and my life is bad, and I am the problem now. It's condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. God says, not for me. You're not the problem. But I am the solution. You ever feel impossible? feels impossible, right? How could this change? How could this fix? It is impossible. Unless it's with God. Luke chapter 1 verse 37 says, For with God nothing will be impossible. Just a couple more verses I want to share with you guys, but where are you at tonight? I wonder very much if we could see into your heart how dark it would be, or how alone you would feel, or the desperation, or whatever it is going on. There is none but Jesus. Psalms chapter 34, verse 17 says, the righteous, they cry out, and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all of their troubles, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. If you're like, I'm broken, I'm desperate, I'm weak, I'm weary, God says, I'm with you. Tonight, the Lord is with you. Romans 8:38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't it funny? We come to God sometimes thinking that he's going to hate us or, or uh, uh, you've been messing up or you've been hurting yourself or all of these different things that are going on in your life and you need to figure it out. It's honestly, guys, it's like going to a doctor thinking a doctor's going to be mad at you for getting sick. It doesn't happen. The doctor cares and has compassion and put himself through eight years of school to be able to help you. You don't come to the doctor's office like, oh man, I don't know what's wrong. He's like, dummy, what'd you do that for? Get out of here, come back when you're all better. I'd be the worst doctor in the world. And yet we turn to God and think, God doesn't love me anymore. God doesn't care about me anymore. God doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. I've disappointed the Lord or I've turned my back on the Lord. And God says, yeah, I'm right here. Where else do you think I would go? The worship team can come on out. James chapter 4. What's the key? How do you turn on the light? How do you find that hope? James chapter 4, verse 8, it says, You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? It starts with just crying out, Lord, I need you. God, I'm broken and I'm hopeless and I'm hurting. I'm desperate. I feel like there's no way out. I remember when one of my boys was, could barely talk. He was a tiny little baby. And I remember they had bunk beds. And I remember every now and then they wake up. And I, I remember so clearly one of my son's first nightmares. I don't remember what it's about, but I remember when it happened. I remember laying in bed and I was gone asleep as two or three o'clock in the morning and I just remember hearing this crazy little baby crying and it was a different kind of a cry. It wasn't a hurt, it was a I am terrified, freaking out kind of a cry. And I don't know if my feet ever touched the ground, they must have, but flew into his room as fast as I could. I remember grabbing him and just freaking out and it was totally dark. And I remember grabbing him and picking him up, and he just freak, couldn't even put his arms around my neck, just freaking out. And he just, got you, got you, got you, got you, got you, got you. And I'm like, what the heck is he saying? This is crazy. And trying to figure it out, he, he could barely mumble. Even during the day, he could barely talk. He's a tiny little kid. And I finally realized he's saying, got you, got you, got you. And I just start whispering in his ears, I got you, I got you, I got you. I'm dad, I'm right here, I got you. All he wanted to know was that dad had him. And he began to put his arms around and he began to slow down and do the thing. And it's just, I got you, buddy. I got you. And he began to go limp and began to go back to sleep. All he needed to know was that his father was there. Tonight, if that's what you're dying for, I need to know that someone is here. Someone tell me something. Someone whisper something into my ear. God has got you in the palm of his hand and he will never let you go. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor, you're heavy laden, you're burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart and you will find rest for your 
soul. God says, tonight's the night. I've got you. And I don't know what your thing is, but tonight I want to invite you guys to come to Jesus. That if you're broken, you're empty, you're lost, you're still loved by the Almighty God. And no matter how many scars you may have, you'll never beat the nails that were driven through the wrists of Jesus. He bore it all so that you wouldn't have to.